And so I remember when I was able to really get, feel like God was saying to me, forgive them, forgive them. And I say, I don't have in this body, not even a single bone in my body would actually be able to do that. But it gave me the strength, give me the courage to be able to forgive this, to forgive the rape that happened to me again, because rape was used as a weapon in the genocide. So there were uh, up to like 500,000 women who were raped and girls in the genocide. Forgive these people for, for, for killing my family. Um, and when I was able to say that, Betsy, it was when I felt like my spirit was really lifted with so much freedom, with so much joy that I, I couldn't explain. And so, and then God said to me, pray for them. And I, that, to that, I, I was like, God, you must be funny, really. I live better than a king ever did. I live better than a king. Oh, 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 oh. I I've got a puppy and I've got a car and I've got friends and love in my heart and I've got the constitution. Welcome, Freedom Junkies, to Freedom Junkie Radio, again, the podcast that brings you freedom in any way we can find it, more freedom. Today is a very, very special edition of Freedom Junkie Radio, because my guest today is one of those people that you come across rarely in life, who is an extraordinary person, with an extra, who's lived an extraordinary life. I am welcoming Jean-Celestine Lakin to the show. Jean, I'm going to introduce you and tell more about you, but thank you so much. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much, Betty, for having me. You know, when I read the title of uh, uh, this podcast, I was like, wow, I used to be so freedom junkie. And I used to be a freedom, I mean, a, a, poli a political junkie. I used to be like so immersed into politics and wanting to learn more and wanting to soak in so much more. Then it kind of got negative. And I was like, I usually like the way to protect myself when I feel like that angst coming from me, you know, to me. I was like, okay, I need to pull myself back a little bit. But I just love that you created this space for people to come in and express themselves, to have this like platform where people can actually talk. Uh, I love that the fact that you have this place that people like myself can be on here and be able to share my story. So hopefully I'll have to have some, you know, saints to something additional to this conversation. So again, thank you so much for having me. Well, I am beside myself. Um, so you guys know, I'm gonna just give a little introduction to Jean. Um, I read her book and I'm gonna be referring to this throughout this uh, interview, her book, A Voice in the Darkness. Jean was nine years old when the Rwandan genocide began. She turned 10 during it. And so there you go. Jean is a Rwandan genocide survivor. Um, that was in 1994 and it was just so recent. And not only did she survive, but it, it, all kinds of horrific experiences. But now she has come through the other end 
and is an advocate for orphans all over the world. So we're going to get to all of this and that I just want everyone to go get a copy of the book or, or you'll order it. We'll teach you how to order it off of her. It is an unbelievable book. Jean, I, I was honestly a little scared to read it because you just think, okay, here we go. This is going to be a really heavy one and it's going to bum me out. But I have to say, I read it in three days in three sittings. I couldn't put it down. And your story is so compelling and it's beautifully written. And I, it never bummed me out. It, um, you give extreme detail as to what was happening. And I know that that had to be therapeutic for you and we can talk about all of that, but I just, I, I don't want anyone to be afraid of this book. It doesn't bum you out, it shifts you. And it makes you grow up a little bit because you recognize how people can be so cruel and be made to be so cruel and how did this happen and how and could it happen again and all of this so tell us a little bit about i mean you I, you were nine you had to survive in the woods mainly uh with your two little sisters so you are one of is it 11 children so my parents actually all together there were like 13 of us but my both mom and dad from a family of 10 so, and I kind of fall into like this the the second group so I have a twin sister as well uh, but thank you for reading the book and thank you for letting the audience know that it's not as it's a it's a painful experience but when I was telling it from the beginning I I actually didn't think that it would come into uh, a book uh, story when uh, after the genocide, uh, so I mean, the genocide was three months of a genocide, but it was one of the fastest killing campaign in our modern history. It was just over 100 days, 1 million people are slaughtered. They're killed because of their ethnicity, because of the way they looked. And so we go from that and I get to survive the, you know, the chaos, like you mentioned, I was in the bushes, hiding in the swamps with my three-year-old twin sisters. And I go back, now I have a five-year-old, I look and go, wow, terrible threes, because they were just not, they were not understanding. And there was no way to explain that. We are hiding because of how God created us. We are being killed because of our ethnicity. And so they, they would just cry, I wanna go see mommy, I wanna go see daddy. And uh, they go, you kidnapped us basically to be here in this, you know, bushes and these swamps, they didn't understand the genocide. And I stopped trying to even explain to them. But after the genocide, I felt so much like anger, resentment, uh, bitterness. It was just my heart felt like I was in this dark place of just anger, um, almost nonstop because of uh, what I've seen. At one point in the genocide, I watched my father being killed with machetes and clubs. Witness my mother's dead body as well, and my three-year-old twins, I mean my three-week-old little brother. And so with all of that, I, I was like, I need to be able to tell my siblings, my siblings, what I just witnessed, how I survived the genocide, hoping that they would tell me in return why they've survived, how they survived. And so when I began having a conversation with them, it was when they I, I noticed my older brother, Amable, 
got up and left. My twin sister, Jeanette, she got up and she left. And that I realized that they didn't want to share that deepest pain of their lives. Uh, it's, it's sad that, you know, a lot of times when you love somebody so much, you just don't, you rather keep it to yourself. So that way you don't feel like they're carrying your pain. And so I feel like that's for them, they didn't want me to know how bad it was for them. And there was wanting to like, if I tell you what happened to me, you can tell me what happened to you. And it wasn't even up to this day, they haven't got to a place to, to be able to share with me what the experience has been for them. But when after the genocide, I started writing in my native language uh, of what I've seen, because I really wanted to have that history for my younger uh, siblings uh, of what happened, what I experienced, and also to kind of let them know what mom and dad were like uh, as loving, kind, people to humanity to everyone in our community and so I started writing in my native language and then I met my husband Paul and when I came to U.S. I started writing both in my native language was a little bit of French in there and also English as well so there's these notebooks stacks of notebooks of how that experience was for me and I met my husband and I said yeah that's just uh, stories of how I survived the genocide and he was like now, you know, you know what, this is not just for your siblings, it's for the world to know what took place in 1994, uh, the genocide against Tutsi people. So I went back and we started translating this uh, note into, from these notebooks, putting everything in English. And that's how the book really came to be what it is. And I, I love the fact that my husband was part of it because the way I, I wrote it, it was very much, I was like venting of what I experienced. So there was, it was raw, you know, images of what happened. And then when we started going back and we, he would actually interview me and go, okay, what else is, are you able to, what are you feeling as you're sitting in these bushes? What are you feeling as you stand in front of the, these people with machetes and clubs in their hands? And, you know, the image, I love the fact you say it's well written, he would actually ask me those interview questions and I was able to add in those details that otherwise I would have like left out. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's what you went through. You're a survivor, like that would make these guys on these survivor shows like bow down because you were nine. You hadn't practiced surviving. You you guys ate whatever you could find. You you I don't even know if you ever changed clothes no. in all those months. No. You were no showers, no showers. You were rags. Your hair was a mess. You uh, and you ate whatever you could find and you survived. You are and you survived encounters with people where you found this power inside you to look at a grown man and say, let us pass for whatever reason you pretended to be Hutu. And and it is your nine-year-old self is some is a force to be reckoned with I'm so grateful to meet you now um yeah I it's it's a it's an incredible story and your you know one of the things I I was looking into Rwanda um before I interviewed you today and I see that the country is 93 percent Christian I see that you have a cross on and one of the moments in the book that struck me so hard was a funeral 
and it was a Christian funeral. And there weren't many funerals going on at this time. It was, there were bodies everywhere. Yeah. It, it must have been, uh, I can't remember who it was. Was it, it was a Hutu? There was a Hutu funeral going on. Right. And it was a Christian funeral. And I'm like, these people are Christians. How did, so that just with that as a background, my question is, I'm sure you've given it so much thought and you've given so, you're so forgiving and loving. I am too. I'm forgiving and loving. I haven't had to do it in, to the degree you have. You've gone deeper than most of us ever would even happen could even fathom going um how is it that humans christians people who have love in their heart can be turned against each other you witnessed it and it was so confusing to you when you were nine in the first day at school when they separated you and said okay those of you you guys are going to sit over here and y'all are going to sit over here and you had no understanding of that there was a difference and that that when they the people who decided that there was going to be division and uh, I guess th this was perpetrated on purpose. What are your thoughts about that? So the background of the uh, and you covered it so well when I get into this place where they're actually going to have a funeral for this old man who was really super old. He was uh, Carol. That's his name in the book. He, so I got there because the mayor sends me there. So the mayor says in the middle of the genocide, and that you find this like very much, uh, you know, ridiculous. So they will say, well, we have in the middle of the genocide, uh, they almost at the end, actually, the, the genocide, they will say, the government said, we have forgiven girls and women. We have forgiven you for being a Tutsi. But it was a lie. But it was a lie. And, you know, you go back and go, forgiven us for being who God created us to be, like we have to apologize for this uh, somehow. But when I met the mayor in, in the genocide, he said, well, go to this place where uh, it's going to be safe. They're going to protect you. They're going to rebuild your home that was destroyed in the middle of the genocide. When I got there, the, the men were drinking, they were eating, they were they had their machetes and clubs aside because they were celebrating the victories of the people that they have killed the, you know, during the day. So when I arrived there, they were shocked to see me, to see a Tutsi woman, a child, children still walking in the, you know, in the country. In a sense, we're like aliens in, in our own country. So I get there, they said, well, have a seat over there and pray we will kill you in 15 minutes. And Betsy, so literally that's all I have. Prayers, everything else had been stripped away from me at that point that I relied so much on God's strength throughout this uh, chaos. And my prayer was simple. Every time I said, God, blind them that they might not see me. I know they can, they, in a physical sense, they, they can see me. But I said, God, blind them that they might, might not see us, that you protected us all these days, all these, you know, these months. This is another chance you have to show up, God. And Betsy, so they gave us another 30 minutes. And 30 minutes turned into an hour, 45 minutes to an hour. And at the end of it, they said, okay, you go and stay with this man. We will kill you tomorrow. The man that they had me stay with, that's his father who, who passed away and they had to bury him. But you have to remember this man was actually, uh, who uh, had this uh, funeral, Christian funeral, 
was actually sexually abusing me as well. Right. And so it just, it's so hard to explain what, you know, uh, one of the, like how people's mind could change, how you can really, you know, propaganda can change people's mind to participate in something so horrific as a genocide. But, you know, one of the things, you know, because of my faith, people, even actually on Monday, I was with President Bush and he asked me, he said, did you ever resent God for everything that you've gone through? And I said, no, because I know during the genocide, those people with machetes, those people raping women who used rape as a, a weapon, those are, God has created us to have, you know, the freedom to choose. We can be good people. We could also choose to be evil. So those people holding machetes, it wasn't God. God gave them a choice. But those people who chose to, uh, the perpetrators of the genocide picked up, they bought into the ideology that Tutsis, like people like myself, we were, they used to call us the cockroaches, the snakes, basically everything except humans. So we were dehumanized and some people really bought into it. What, still, uh, what I still don't understand is how the regular citizens just really like the people my parents used to pay, you know, uh, school fees for their children. The people that my parents used to, you know, feed uh, were the people coming after us, trying to kill us. Uh, that quick shift of mindset is something that I still don't understand. It's unbelievable. Um, so in at the beginning of chapter five, um, I'm going to just read a little bit, I think, because this is, it says, in the days before the genocide, we were glued to our radio. Like most Rwandans, we listened to this particular channel. Um, and it had become a popular alternative to the official voice of the government. And um, it played Rwandan music and invited the public to call into broadcasts rousing anti-Tutsi sentiment. The station was essentially a propaganda tool for genocide insiders. So they were not hiding that there was this, and, and you guys were, your family was listening to this and saying, this is horrible. And your neighbors were saying, we're, we're going to kill you and take your stuff. I mean, so this was done on purpose. So the, the two things that are, that are unbelievable that happened and, and it was only 25 years ago, this could happen again. This could, this was what, 27 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the, that the powers that be for some reason would start inciting division and violence amongst a, a country that was peaceful before that. You were, some of your best friends have been the Hutus. It's, it, it's mind blowing. And then how the propaganda that these people are awful, they called you all those things. And that's, you know, that was also happened to the Jews. That is one of the, the, the a man in 1986, before this genocide, had written something called the 10 stages of genocide. Have you ever heard of that? I actually have, uh, I just, uh, I was speaking at the um, Dallas uh, Museum, Museum Holocaust. And uh, we went through the just not just the Holocaust, and also they have a distribution of Rwandan genocide. And those ten um, stages are posted in there. Um, okay. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm very familiar. Uh, it's just the process to it is what just you go. Wow. There's a plane. There's a 
the plans is that they're laid out. Like, you know, Rwanda, for, for example, they gave away a list of names, our names, the Tutsi names. Uh, we had prior, Rwanda was colonized. And so obviously we had uh, ethnicity in your, you know how we carry our uh, driver's license here. So your driver's license equivalent to uh, racial identity in Rwanda, we have to have your, your race in there. We have to have your ethnicity. So if you were Tutsi, that would be stamped in your uh, identity. If you were Hutu, same thing. If you were Twa, that would be uh, in there as well. So people, the government, when they released the list of our, you know, our Tutsi names and the homes that were going to be targeted, the regular citizens had the list and they knew who to go after. It was just so plain. Uh, it was uh, it wasn't like overnight. They had ordered machetes you know, overseas, they imported 500,000, uh, 5, 500,000 machetes specifically to kill the Tutsis. So it was, it was you know, the world knew um, it wasn't uh, this secret that was hidden in Rwanda. The radio, the RTRM uh, was broadcasted all over the country. East Africa communities could hear uh, the insights. People were just energized by this spirit of uh, wiping out entire race. Um, and one of the things that they've done because of propaganda was uh, you kill them, you can come and take over their possessions, their resources, their homes, their lands. Uh, you just come and collect all of the stuff. So some, some of the regular people went for that. We'd also see that we had doctors, we had politicians, you know, higher level educated people participating. And that's because the propaganda campaign went on for, for years. So um, at what point did they make you put your ethnicity on your driver's license? It was a very early, actually. It was very, very early. So when uh, the when Rwanda was colonized, um, I believe it happened in 1959. So we had like uh, multiple genocides in Rwanda. There was one when um, Rwanda was uh, making a shift. Uh, like my mother experienced a genocide as well in 59. And then there was another one when uh, the government is actually, Rwandan government is saying, you know what, we don't we no longer want to be colonized. We're going to be in an independent country in the 60s. So that shift of power, it became, but Tutsis and Hutus lived side by side without this chaos. They really, there was this uh, understanding, yeah, these people might have like narrow nose, just, you know, they're tall, they have uh, small, you know, bones, um, but they lived side by side. And what's more, even more, you know, ridiculous, I think, is that we speak the same language, the same traditions. Um, there's no distinct differences between these people. There were so many uh, uh, marriages between the, the groups. So you have Tutsis, you know, a family, of, like the same way we look at here, like for instance, my husband and I, black and white, right? You have these mixed children between these races. So where do you pull those kids? But ethnicity back though, in those days in Rwanda, the children will go under the father's status, not never the mother's status. If I was a Tutsi, if I marry a Hutu, the children will become Hutus. And so, yeah, the ethnicity, those like labels on the ethnicity uh, racial identity card were there for, okay. for years. But you didn't know. 
when you came home from school that day, you had been unaware that there were two groups of people. Exactly. I had no clue. I didn't even know that this hatred, uh, these ideologies among the you know Tutsis and Hutus were there. So there I was, my teacher said, if you come to my class, if you come back to school tomorrow and you have no idea who you are, you're going to be expelled. So I went home with so much, I felt like it was this like discovery that I was about to find out, but I was also afraid uh, to find out that I was a Tutsi because majority of my class, you know, my friends were sitting on the Hutu side and I'm going like, I care to sit in front of the classroom. Yeah, but I also care to be with my friends who are now looking at me like, you're no longer welcome to be part of our group. And that type of like, uh, it just makes me so sad that children will look at each other uh, otherwise. There's so much love when you look at children, but to kind of divide to the level of dividing children, it just was sickening to me. So my mother, I went home and I said, mom, who am I? Who are we? And mom played this, uh, she was like, what are you talking about kind of deal? I said, are we Tutsi? Are we Hutu? Where are we? It was like a shock for me to ask that question. And so she danced around and and then she said, well, you need to know, you're, you're just a, you know, you're a, God, you're a child of God. That's all you need to know. And then I came back and I said, you need to tell me because it's an assignment. I have to go back and tell my teacher which ethnicity that I belong to so I can actually be seated with that ethnic group. That really, like, it actually made her so sad that she cried. And I was like, mom, we're listening to the radio. We're hearing these things. You can no longer protect us. It's just, it's in the public. And so, she, again, she waited for dad to come in as well. And my daddy's words were just, it, it's something that I carry on up to this day. He's, when I asked the same question because I wanted to understand how this came about, my father said, in the kingdom of God, there's no Tutsi, there's no Hutu, there's no Twa. We are all God's children. And that's what matters the most. All these labels that we put on each other, these are man-made because it's just for bias reasons, for you know, people wanting to take power, that's it, that, that was really it. And I look at the world in my father's eyes uh, because I, I believe we, we are all created in God's image. I believe that God who made us, there's no black or white Asian or, you know, it's just, we are created in his love and that's enough. So, yeah. You did such a beautiful tribute to your parents and how wonderful they were. I mean, listen to the wisdom of your father, deep knowing that we are all God's children. We are all, there's, there's, there, we're no different in the eyes of God. Why would we be different in each other? And, and your parents were lovely people who helped in their community. And um, so I'm sure people are wondering, well, if you knew it was going to happen, why didn't you get out? And the answer is in the book. Your mother was hugely pregnant and you mm -hmm. wanted to wait until the baby was born before you left. And it was just too late. Uh, she gave birth and then three weeks later. I mean, I'm sure it, but there were some crazy things that happened during that time. The president of your country was um, um, killed on an airplane, which I think is probably a little bit suspicious. Um, so uh, uh, how 
so so human beings are totally capable of being of falling for propaganda and brainwashing so i'm i'm assuming that the and you've probably given this a lot of thought how do we recognize when that's happening in order to keep it from happening again it seems like if someone came to me and said hey you need to hate those people over there I, I don't think I'd fall for it, you know, but I'm human. And, and, and apparently that's what we, we do. I, I, what, what do we do to keep this from happening again? You know, one of the things that I, you know, and you mentioned something, and let me go back really quick with my father being, uh, I've been done so much work in the community and they believed, which was, you know, kind of cute in a way, they believed that because of the, their love for the community, my father was a, a mediator. So people who had any issues about, you know, whether it was land, marriage, or what between conflicts in, in the community, they'll come to my father because they used to know him as the fair judge. And uh, because of that love they had for the community, the leadership that they carried in the community, they thought these Hutu families are going to protect us. There's no way these people we loved on would actually change their mind and come and kill us because of the way we are. And so that was one. And then for me, I, you know, even like to your question, it was just like a really mind boggling to, to still understand how quickly people can change their mind. But I think to stop it from happening, uh, one thing that I've done for me, me personally, I think Forgiving was one of the things that I, I felt like, okay, God, help me. My parents were Christians. So I remember my mother, she used to like actually say, if you have a bitter heart, if you have, uh, you, if you're angry at your brothers and sisters, and we were fighting over the small things, right? Like siblings fight. But she would say, before we pray, if you have something in your heart that is uh, bothering you, you better make it right with God before you say whatever you need to say to God. Otherwise, there was almost like this shield over your prayers that there's this distance that God is not going to hear your prayers because you have that anger in your heart. So when my mother gets killed uh, in a genocide, I had a hard time really saying, I forgive these people. And um, I, I felt, I was like, there's no way I would get myself to forgive such act. My father dies. The same thing. My it was almost like my uh, there was a grave, and then I was going deeper and deeper and deeper with anger and resentment. And so after the genocide, I, I find the courage to say, God, please give me the strength to be able to do this because I know you ask of me. Uh, in the Bible, which again, my both my parents stated that um, you ask for forgiveness and make it okay because that's how God is gonna forgive me. And every sin is, you know, and we, sometimes we think that our sins are lighter compared to somebody else. They're the same in God's, you know, his eyes. So I say, God, forgive them because if he forgives them, he's gonna be able to allow me to be forgiven as well. And so I remember when I was able to really get, feel like God was saying to me, forgive them, forgive them. And I say, I don't have in this body, not even a single bone in my body would actually be able to do that. But it gave me the strength, give me the courage to be able to forgive this, to forgive the rape that happened to me again, because rape was used as a weapon in the genocide. So there were uh, up to like 500,000 women who were raped and girls in the genocide. 
forgive these people for, for, for killing my family. Um, and when I was able to say that, Betty, it was when I felt like my spirit was really lifted with so much freedom, with so much joy that I, I couldn't explain. And so, and then God said to me, pray for them. And I, that, to that, I, I was like, God, you must be funny, really. Pray and bless these people. How do I do this? I can say I forgive them, but how do I bless them? And again, God gave me that strength to be able to do that. And I felt like there was this, you know, um, just these doors of opportunities that were sort of like close to me because of that anger that were just opened. And, um, and so I devoted my, my life to advocating for peace and reconciliation because of that. When I, I forgive, I actually, even when I went to Washington State University, one of my roommate was somebody from the other ethnicity. So you have to take from the Hutu, whose parents were actually in prison because of their participation in the genocide. But it's that kind of love. Uh, and again, there's so many misconceptions about forgiveness. A, a lot of people go, well, if I forgive somebody, I am minimizing the pain that they've caused me. Or if I forgive somebody, it's almost like I'm saying what they've done wasn't as painful, but that's not, the, you know, really that's not the truth. We forgive because we want to give ourselves the peace. When you forgive, you have this ability to be able to enjoy, you know, what God has in front of you. You have to be able to enjoy the peace and freedom that we are all created to be able to enjoy. Um, I mean, I spent so many nights thinking about the people who harmed me. Uh, and I remember stepping on, you know, I used to be such, I would enjoy simple things. Uh, I love nature, I love people. But after the genocide, I would step outside and the sunshine would hit my face and I was like, I don't feel it. I would see beauty in, in nature and I wasn't feeling that either. But when I would, after I forgive, I was able to enjoy those simple things again. Uh, when I have a cup of coffee, I'm like, wow, thank you God for this. There's joy in simple things when we're able to free our mind. So forgiveness really is a, is a gift to yourself, if, you know, for your audience, big or small, when you forgive, you free yourself, you give yourself freedom. It, that's, it is, that's the, that's the freedom. Forgiveness absolutely gives yourself a freedom. And I, I have never, and to have gone to the depths that you've been to, and then to reach down and find that, in you and be able to come out the other side and have I think that the joys and the the gratitude and the things that you experience I I I can't reach those levels because I haven't reached the other the other levels that you had to go through and um just what a powerful testimony you have for that it's just beautiful to see and that you're walking this earth and that you came through it and that you love. And that's just such an amazing testam testament to humanity, the, um, the depths and then the heights that we can reach. And so I, I wanna talk about a couple more things. And I, I one of them is that I recognize division amongst us now and and you said you used the word planned that the that the gen, the genocide in Rwanda had been planned and so you know it's it's 
very ironic because most people aren't talking about the Rwandan genocide. It's not on people's minds right now. Um, and I heard a, a pundit on the radio mention it. He mentioned Rwanda and I'm sitting here thinking, I have, I, I'm gonna be doing this interview in a couple of weeks. I was traveling, yes. And he said, um, who stood to benefit? Why did it happen? Why did the, because everyone in Rwanda uh, maybe not everyone, but the Hutus and the Tutsis, all, the country was ruined for everyone. You were amongst Hutu refugees at the end. And they didn't realize when they set out to kill all the Tutsis that they were gonna destroy the country for themselves as well. I didn't realize people, your the the roommate you had, her her um, parents had gone to prison then. If you, if you participated in the, in the genocide, you went to prison and yeah, okay. Yeah, once they find out that you did participate, some people brought themselves and said, yeah, I killed 400 people. So what do you do with me? I mean, over 1 million people dead in one, you know, in 100 days, there are so many participants. There were millions of participants to kill that many people. Um, and so, some people came forward, other people like, you know, for example, like myself watching people kill, I'll go, if I was in Rwanda, they have these um, uh, grassroots uh, courts where people basically invite citizens, regular citizens to come in and say, well, I know who participated with these people come forward and say, I killed. I killed so-and-so's children. I killed so-and-so's husband and, you know, the whole family or, or so. I took all these, like, you know, resources from this family. Uh, and also some of those uh, who were in prison will start saying, I actually did this thing with so-and-so. So they started, some people started turning, you know, their friends uh, in the genocide. But it's such a beautiful thing to see that this, like, grassroots, people ask for forgiveness in these like, uh, you know, court system, lower level courts, we also have, of course, uh, Supreme Courts as well. But for those cases where it's on the grassroots, people are communicating and those people who have asked for forgiveness have been released back into the community. So these Rwandans who participated in the genocide are living side by side with the Tutsi families that they have killed their, you know, uh, their loved ones. And again, because there was no way you keep these many people in prison. They destroyed the country. Basically, I mean, they demolished the country, the schools, the roads, the buildings. They just like really threw bombs and grenades and, and that they just flee the country. So if they decided to come back, they had to be part of the participants in rebuilding this nation. And so there was no other way but living side by side with, you know, with them. You know, but they go through training of uh, how to go back into society so that they don't um, do the same thing that they've done before the genocide, you know, after, in the genocide. Uh, it's interesting. It seems like it would be harder to forgive yourself for having participated than for forgiving. I mean, I can't imagine being like, yeah, I, I, I swallowed the Kool-Aid and went and killed a bunch of people and how, I mean, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Um, so the, the country, it, this uh, pundit that I heard said, who stood to gain? Who wanted Rwanda? And I hadn't thought of that while I was reading your book. And I don't know if you, I'm sure you've thought about it many, 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 many times and many hours. Who stood to gain? Who did this? 
really think it, I mean, I know there was, it was a genocide that planned, um, that planned the killing, the, the Hutu government um, planned to, when they told these uh, regular citizens that you kill them, you take over their resources, uh, it all comes down to greed. Uh, really, you tell these people, you're going to gain, now, on, if you, you do this, you're going to gain possessions. Uh, and that was, that's all it took for them to be able to participate. So I don't think there was, when international communities left uh, Rwanda, that just broke my heart because I thought, you know, these powerful nations could have stepped up and say something, uh, like you said, you don't hear Rwandan genocide. You, I mean, it's a, one million people are dead in 100 days in the 20th century. It, it's, it's like, whoa, that was just 27 years ago and one million people dead, but people are not talking about it. And so the Rwandan genocide was this thing that they, you know, a lot of uh, international communities that they say, well, there's just a little bit of a, a war that is happening um, in Rwanda, in East Africa. There's a, a they call it a conflict. And so it didn't carry the magnitude as was happening on the ground. I meet people who go, when they meet me and go, what, you survived it, what, where was that? Yeah. Why was that, why would that be happening? But it, it just, uh, you know, uh, the international communities turned a blind eye on, on the conversation about what was happening in Rwanda, stepped out completely. It was, the country was, uh, the borders of Rwanda were sealed, uh, basically, so that the Tutsis won't be able to escape uh, in the middle of the genocide. And so, I, yeah, I don't know. And those who sold machetes to Rwanda and the money that was poured into, you know, the guns and grenades and all the army, um, uh, you know, uh, sources that were poured into this, it was just like, I can, me as a person being on the other end, you know, receiving end, I just don't, I still don't understand. I, when I was uh, taken into the Congo with this man who was obviously, you know, abusing me, sexually abusing me and taking me to a different country because he was, uh, he was afraid that he might be, um, he would face consequences because again, I don't, I didn't say it, even in the book that he killed anyone because I don't know for a fact, but he'll get up every single day with a machete in a club and he said he, he's going to work. And so when he knew that the new government was coming in, the Tutsi government was coming in, the, uh, 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 that it was going to take over, he said, let's just pack our bags and just go to Congo. And then in the Congo, that's when he was actually about to sell me into marriage as I'm you know, 10 years old at the time. And I, I remember sitting in the lines of uh, UNICEF praying that they would take me anywhere in the world. I didn't care where I would go as long as I wasn't being you know, sexually abused at that time or being sold into marriage as a 10 year old. But even at the uh, UNICEF, we had people who were checking us into uh, to, you know, filing who were the Hutus, the people who are participating in the genocide. So I guess the people that are meeting there, they're the same people who actually wiped out my family and they're not gonna have me going in any play, any other places for safety. So I, I managed to come back to Rwanda and that's where I was a homeless kid uh, in Rwanda because again, there were thousands and thousands of children in the streets because of orphanages were full. Um, and so we became homeless. And um, at one point I found, I mean, I had my first job when I was 10, I was a maid. 
but I always felt that having the kind of faith that I had in God, having that the hope that God took care of me through such chaos, through such dark place, that God somehow will, will be able to uh, bring me to safety, uh, that he was going to make it okay for me to be in, you know, okay after the genocide. So I kept on hope, really held on to hope like that that was the only way for me to, to stay alive. You made it through so many situations when you thought certainly this is the end. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I, God has a purpose for me on this planet. Cause when, once the purpose is done, then, then, you know, it's over and that's that. And so you must really feel that way, obviously. And uh, you are, are do everything you can for orphans. Tell us a little bit about what obviously orphans have a special place in your heart. Um, as an orphan, after the genocide, you ended up in a foster family where the father sexually abused you and raped you as well. So it's interesting to me that you, I, I, you had to forgive that too. I mean, so even in your time of being an orphan and having atrocities again, happened to you. You've come through so much and you're um, obviously you feel so passionate about helping orphans in the world. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what we can do. Thank you for that question, Baby. I really felt like my my mother used to take like little um, baskets of food or clothes to the orphanages. Um, and I, I before the genocide, you think like there's not that many orphan, you know, orphans in you know, orphanages, and there weren't that many at all. And so to step into my mother's footstep was with actually my husband and I, we had we came up with a uh, an nonprofit. It's called One Million Orphans. And when people can go on a website as well um, and find um, my website, a voice in the darkness.org, and can donate there. So this um, nonprofit is really to raise money to feed these kids, to close them, to keep them in school. Because we want to show them that it doesn't matter way, you know, how you showed up in this world, but you showed up because like you just said, Betsy, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And so to support and empower those young little children is, it's been something that I feel like it's in my heart to do. And that's the only way to give back. Uh, we're also like uh, here at the college, I work, at a, I work at the community college, Moonsa College. I oversee uh, foster and adopted students as well. And to be able to guide them, knowing that they, they have been without uh, having our children living in foster care system, it's a great place to have, uh, but they don't learn a whole lot on how to succeed in life. So to be able to help them navigate academic side of things and also to help them outside of academic it's just, it's, for me, is a gift. Uh, and I chose ed education because of when I was a homeless kid, I remember my father, I mean, even before the genocide, my father used to say that education was your ticket to actually that will open so many doors of opportunities. And if you wanted to advocate for a group of people, if you wanted to be invited at the table to discuss policy changes, you have to be educated. And so, for me to be at a community college as an you know, academic advisor on top of all the other hats that I get to wear uh, is to be able to help empower our young people 
to reach the you know your fullest potential in the world. But one million orphans really uh, it's one million orphans because there were many that many people killed in three you know three months in one hundred days. Um, but we're giving back those resources in order to to tell them these kids there's somebody who loves you. You might came here not wanted, but you are loved. And that's the, the role we get to play. So my goal is to be able to go global all over the world. And on top of that, and also help our children here in Texas as well, uh, but it, be able to touch millions uh, of lives. So you help to, um, in it, you, so it's a global thing where, where you raise money to help orphans, whether that's feed them, clothe them, help them find families, all of it. All of it, yes. Yeah. I feel like a guy pulled me in this place. I, I, I asked myself, okay, so what else do I do, God? And I felt like orphans and widows. Uh, I also advocate for peace and reconciliation, but I really feel like if we can love on these kids, and show them that somebody cares, they're gonna grow up knowing that they're worth uh, in the community. They're gonna go out in there in the world, treat their neighbors. Uh, you know, they're gonna love on somebody else the way we're loving on them. That's just my hope. We were supposed to donate in, uh, in the Philippines uh, to the orphanage homes, but then COVID happened. My sweet husband knows. So a lot of times I get phone calls that said, well, from these orphanages, we have kids who have no, you know, basic needs. What do you do? So when people are not buying the book to support me, or when I'm not uh, invited to speak, and obviously because of COVID, I'm not raising money. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of money to be able to give into these, uh, you know, children other than just giving away my paycheck. And I don't, you know, working in education is not a whole lot. But people can really have an impact in these children's lives. I normally say that, you know, if you buy a pizza for 25 bucks, you can put a child in school in Burundi. You can buy them uniform, you can buy them rice and beans. And those things seem like very basic, but for those children, they'll be forever grateful. Uh, Christmas time, we give to the children in Burundi again, and just to feed them on Christmas. It was just so moving to see the smiles on their faces. Um, the, the Christmas before 2020, I think it was 2019, I did something here with my colleague where we had children from foster care write a list of what they wanted on a, a piece of paper. And I went into the stuff, the professors, colleagues and say, this is a list of these, what these kids want. And people came, students were giving to our students here in Texas. So we invited up to like 50 plus children in foster care and tears in the room of those children who have been in foster care for so many years. And they said, we have never had Christmas. And I surprised them with uh, Santa Claus as well. So we had a professor dressed up as Santa Claus and they took pictures. It was a highlight of their lives. And so, if I could do a little bit of something here and there to impact those children's uh, uh, experience, maybe that's what I'm here for. The inspiration is gigantic. I'm so thrilled to have come across you and know you because there's a lot of people I know that would love to give directly to 
a, a foundation or a nonprofit or something that they know is doing the right thing with the money. A lot of times you don't know. And so if, as if you're listening to this and you are interested in helping, uh, like, uh, like Jean is saying, uh, a, a foster kid here or an orphan in Burundi, this is the place to give. It's becoming very clear to me because you are so genuinely uh, involved in the lives of orphans all over the world. Uh, and your foundation's called A Million Orphans. So um, I'm gonna try to get the word out there because a lot of people really do wanna help, but they don't know if they're giving to a foundation that keeps 90% of the money or whatever, you know? So- I'll send you pictures, I'll show you proof that, I'll send you a receipt of everything that I have spent. Oh, it's wonderful. I tell people that it's just like a simple, we feel like it's a simple act until we see like, you know, when I get these letters from the kids who are just so grateful to have a new uniform, usually like they'll have one uniform. That's one uniform for a whole year. If they can have two, that's a life changing for them. That's so meaningful for life. For life. Yeah. Um, you know, you're sincere knowing in God and your belief in God is really moving to me because if anyone could ask, and I know you questioned that, you questioned that when you were nine, you said that, you know, well, I don't know, you know, you, you questioned whether you could forgive those people. And um, tell us a little bit about your confidence that God lives. I, I know I, I want to say you're going to say because he lives through me. I forgive and I give and that's what makes me feel alive. But tell me, how are you so sure that God is real? I seriously, Becky, that's such a powerful, good question. And I, I hope I can do justice as I'm trying to think uh, to that question. Um, I know God is real because I've, it's almost like this is crazy that I feel like I actually touched God at one point in life. And I'm getting goosebumps as I'm sitting on the other side of, you know, here down in, you know, in Houston, saying that there was one time that I was going to be killed in the genocide. And I was in line with other people. And I shared with you before that over and over again, my simple prayer was, God, blind these people that they might not see me. So I saw miracles after miracles. I counted how many times I was almost about to die in the genocide, over 200. So it wasn't like I was hiding and just, you know, staying put in the bushes, in the swamps. No, I would get out or the, the bushes would get flushed out with dogs and these people. And there I was. And I would say, God, blind them that they might not see me. Protect me, God. And so I was gonna share again with this uh, moment where we were about to cross into the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo in another country, but still in the refugee camp, they actually identifying people who look like me, the Tutsis. And so I was in that line, they killed about over 20 people. So I'm standing there in line and I say, God, I know you didn't bring me here to die here after you saved my life over and over and over again. I pray that you show up. And again, I'm watching these people kill and throwing the bodies in the river, kill every single one of the people right in front of me. And it was my turn. 
And these men, just like the people before me, they threw me on the ground and they raised the machetes to butcher me. And I closed my eyes, but I hear this woman screaming, saying, stop, stop, that's my daughter, that's my daughter. And these men like had their machetes high up in the air and they stopped because they were confused. And I am confused. And I'm thinking, this woman has probably lost her daughter. There's thousands of people in this refugee camp. She's going to come here and look at me and she's gonna realize I'm not her daughter and she's gonna walk away. This woman weaves herself into this crowd. She looks at me, Betsy. Her eyes, just the same way you and I are looking at each other. She looks at me and she say, that's my child. She was glowing. She was flawless. And in that moment, I was like, okay, I am dying to ask her who, is she, who she is. If these men obviously let me out of here. So the men are like, okay, they're confused. There's this confusion look on their faces. I am confused, but I'm trying to show that confidence. Like I, I know her, have no clue. And they took her on one side and they took me on the other side to do the investigation, to figure out whether really like this is my mother. They asked her my birthday, my full name, first and last name. They asked her where I was born, all those details. Remember the identity card that we talked about that will have your name, your race and all the other stuff in it. Everything that I told these men on the other side were written in her racial identity card. And at one point I told them, I was like, Jean Umutoni, Umutoni was a nickname my father used to give me, which meant that is girl. Instead of giving them my last, my actual last name, I gave them the nickname. And that's what was written in her identity card. So these men come back to me and they look at the woman and they throw my little body, boom, right into her hands. And as I was walking with this woman, I felt this peace in my heart. And she told me, and I looked back to see what they did with the other people behind us, behind me. They had, you know, killed them. But she held my head and she said, you continue to go with these people. I will protect you. I will be with you. And she disappeared just disappeared. I ran into this refugee camp hoping that I'll find her, but I believe that really honestly, that God showed up that day. So I know God is, does exist. And I know it's hard to explain when you see other people dying left and right. Uh, I had another interview with uh, John, uh, John O'Leary um, in his podcast when he was talking about, he asked me, how do you really believe that God lives when you see other people dying. But I, I pray, like, I, we don't get what we prayed for a lot of times, but we have to trust that God is going to do what God does in a moment that where we need him. Uh, and so I prayed for my father, yet I watched him being killed and slaughtered with machetes. I prayed for so many people. I remember one other thing that, you know, just recently I just had a post because my son just turned five yesterday. I remember being in a hospital praying. They gave him a, you know, three to 20 chains of survival because he had fetal, uh, high drops, fluid all over his little body. And I remember praying and saying, God, save him. But I got to a place where I said, God, 
if it is your will, ready be. If you give me seconds with him, if you give me minutes with him, and then that's what I'm going to take. But my spirit is going to be crushed. And if it is crushed, you're going to have to work on my brokenness. And so a lot of times we just don't get what we prayed for, what we pray for. But I know without a doubt. Um, and one of the other miracles that, so I remember just saying to the doctors, after I got the news, between the three to 20 chance of him surviving, I said, I want to go home. My doctors were just like, really? Your son doesn't even have 50% of survival. And you're going, home. I said, I want to go home. So that way I can actually have a real open conversation with God. So I can pray and not having that interruption of somebody coming and knocking on my hospital, you know, <laughs> coming to check on me. I said, I want to be in a place where I can communicate to God. And I remember being in a shower that evening when I showed up home and crying in the shower because I was like, God, really? We had miscarriage before him. So I was like, I'm going to go through this again. And I'm crying, I'm bawling in the shower and I have water just running so my husband doesn't hear me cry or anybody else. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, it was it's so very calm and said in my native language that said, Humura, which means remain calm, I'll be with you. And I say, okay, God, I got out of that shower. I put on a nice dress. I did my makeup and I looked cute. I say, God, he's got this. Whatever happens, he will fix it up or he's going to fix my broken heart. So again, we just don't get what we pray for a lot of times. But God is real. You see God in every detail if you choose to, to look for him. You see him in the beauty, beauty of people, in nature, in all things. God is real. So miracle after miracle after miracle yeah. makes it an impossibility that God couldn't be real. It, 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 it's, uh, and what you've reminded me of is miracles in my life that I've experienced. And I, you know, I think I'm probably like most people and we question it because when you look around and see man's inhumanity to man, which you witnessed more than anyone ever, ever, I don't know anyone else like you. Um, and you question whether God could be real. That's when you do it. But then when you see the miracles, so I'm, I'm speechless. I, I think that those of us who are still, you know, go through that, is God a figment of our imagination? You know, what are, is, is anything real? Um, remember the miracles, because we've all had them. And, and you're kind of lucky to have been someone who, she was an angel, this woman who showed up. I seriously Betsy, believe that God sent me an angel and I remember writing the book and Polly said, my husband called him Polly, sorry guys. He said, I, I wanted to say that, yeah, God sent me an angel. I felt like I literally got to touch that close, you know, to God. Um, but I, yeah, I, and he said, no, they, people just, because some people think that it was my mother who somehow showed up miraculously alive, but she was dead or it was just this wonderful kind woman who just showed up and they disappeared. So we let people just define however that they want. We didn't want to let anyone, um, um, we just didn't want people to kind of have this 
like this is how I feel, therefore you should feel the same way. But me personally, I believe that's God who showed up that day. God showed up one more time. Among the others, you know, 200 plus times, God showed up. I'm so sorry, Betty. That's okay. That that one, but that one's crazy. That one, you knew the name. You put down, you picked a random name. And it was the same name. I mean, yeah, so that's that's one um definitely uh chill chills and and recognizing that your purpose here on this planet is so powerful and so are all the people who were killed i mean that was their role in in this that we could see and i i i know that we're being divided now in this country we, we have been you know divided um by race or you know and and most of us don't don't buy into it i don't think but they've they've tried to divide us by rich and poor and they've tried to divide us by um oh gay and straight i mean you name it and so do you see any of the division that's going on in our country right now as potentially that which could lead to the these these 10 um the 10 stages of genocide the first is classification the second is symbolization when you give names and symbols to people and say they are other and then discrimination there's discrimination going on if you are those people you can't do this and then dehumanization that's when they start calling you the names it happens every time the vermin the cockroaches the snakes uh and then there's organization, preparation, persecution. Then there's the extermination. And the last one is denial. They deny it ever happened. Of course, then you got to get through it for that. I, I don't ever want this to happen again. And I, I wonder if you see, um, but if you see, do you have any stirrings at all of, of what's happening now with discrimination um, being potentially a, a, a situation of genocide? I, I really don't. And, and the reason I say that is because, Betty, we have people like you who are, you are, you come in with kindness, with a good heart to be able to see other people the same way God created them. So I'm hopeful in that not, a, not, not every single one of us is going to be brainwashed. We know better, right? Um, and I, I don't, I try to stay away from people, like you said, you know, at the beginning to be told, oh yeah, I hate this group of people because, you know, if you want to be my friend, you've got to be part of this group and you have to immerse into this group and be, I love the fact that I can have multiple people from all walks of life. I feel like that to me is a way to help me learn and grow. I might not, you know, agree with them hundred percent, but I let them have their opinion and I'm listening and I'm taking in what I think is important, right? And so I am very hopeful that even though that the you know politics got ugly and you know a lot of people are targeting each other, it's just I believe there's kindness in all of us, good people who are going to see through these uh, you know lies, right? And so that gives me hope for humanity. And one of the things that, you know, I advocate for is, uh, you know, again, peace and reconciliation, because I believe if we can walk the aisle, 
and be able to shake hands of somebody who comes from a different religion. We get to know that person on an individual level. We see beauty, we see kindness. We, we really get to know that person and find out that there's commonality than what we, you know, what the media said or what they say about these groups of people. It's so much grayness uh, in those people. Um, I have gay friends, I have, you know, lesbians, I have both parties, uh, Republicans, Democrats, but I, I look to see the goodness in every single one of those individuals because I believe that when we everybody can have their opinions, but also me, I am not going to be influenced just because, you know, I have to really study whatever that it is being told to me and at the end, make my own decision. What happened in Rwanda was because a lot of people were told, you have to hate these people because if you kill them, you can take over their resources. It boggles my mind that a lot of people bought into that ideology. Could it happen here? It is happening. People are just really, I mean, I'm not saying the genocide will happen here, but I think people are, some people become brainwashed enough to do the things that we, you and I might not think that they will be able to do or willing to do. Uh, and that scares me. As a human being who survived the genocide, it scares me to see how, and again, both aisles, we see people just being, you know, had things that you go, that are questionable and nobody's, uh, and who am I to say you wrong? I let people have their opinions because we live in a beautiful country where our first amendment is protected. Free, freedom of speech is real. Uh, and that's why I love to listen to the, you know, to these voices. But yeah, like you, Betty, it scares me. Um, <laughs> it scares me that some people could be potentially, uh, the words are powerful, words are powerful, but people take the words and put it in action. But I'm still hopeful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you saw people in during the Rwandan genocide who never succumbed to it. You had a Hutu friend of the family who was loyal to the end. I'm sure there were lots of them who didn't participate. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, there's just, there's, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> there are, there's good people who who won't fall for the propaganda. Right. And those are people that really, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm so glad you mentioned that because in the book, uh, A Voice in Darkness, I tried to highlight people that I believe, that I saw that were kind, that they would stand, they will, some of them lost their lives. Some Hutus lost their lives because they said, no, this is nonsense. We're not going to stand for this. We're not going to kill so-and-so's children because you promised us that we're getting these you know, uh, resources and things. Uh, so there were people who educated and non-educated people who stood against uh, these ideologies, these uh, hateful ideology. Um, unfortunately, there was, some of them lost their lives again because the, you know, the government was like, no, then if you're not with us, then you don't deserve to leave. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah, like the people who hid, who hid the Jews, mm -hmm. you know, they, they weren't going to call them out. And so, yeah, it's, 
it's a heart thing. And I, I love your hopeful attitude. Mine is too, you know, and, and I also don't fear death at all. I, I would imagine that I'm, I'm going to ask you that because that just came up, but I don't have any fear at all of death. I, and I was just talking to my dad, he's almost 90. And I said, it must be really interesting to be 90 because, you know, at my age, it could happen any day. It could happen any day to any of us. But when you're 90, it's like, that's, it's, it really could, you know, it's, it's going to happen sooner than later. And he has no fear of death. And, and I don't either. I, I, and he said, I look forward to it. And I do too. You know, you've, you've, if you've listened to people who've had near death experiences, it's always this amazing, like love and light and their family, maybe dead family members are just this peace. And so I don't think there's anything to fear there. Um, I don't know, you, you came so close to death so many times. Um, how, how do you feel about death and dying? Betty, I feel like you, you're sweet God and you, I have no fear of dying. The only reason I'm afraid of uh, that, what makes me feel like, okay, what if I'm not here? Then what about those people who that I take care of all happen to them. It's, it's, it's weird. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of what if these people won't be able to make it because I'm not no longer. And I try to empower these, uh, you know, provide sustainable resources to many children that I support and, you know, and also teach my, uh, the people that I care for to take care of themselves if I'm not no longer here. But I'm not afraid of dying. I, I made that so many times that I felt like you, it's weird when you're actually in that place. Uh, for me, I was like, okay, I would actually prepare myself to die in the in the genocide. I was I would see the other end, like there was this like um, and I don't even know the word for that. I would envision myself just dead, like but my spirit had been lifted up in God, but that's just my body there. Uh, so that is not it's not a scary thing to me as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's true. It wasn't until my children were a little older. Your, your son is five. Yeah. <clears throat> it wasn't until they were a little older. And I thought, you know, they could probably make it on their own. At five, you don't feel that way. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, like when my children were that little, I, I felt this definitely not ready to go. And it's not that I'm ready to go, but I'd be okay with it. But you have more than just your, your child. You said people. So you're thinking of the, the foundation, the... What does happen to your foundation when you die? What's going to happen to it? That's exactly the, that's what you know. My fear is, and also not only just the, the foundation, um, but also like the impact that I feel like that I'm called here to be uh, this voice that is that brings in you know peace and reconciliation. Um, talking about forgiveness, the you know I feel like a, I am here to create that impact if I'm talking about forgiveness, if I'm advocating for women and, uh, and girls, uh, those who are coming from countries or uh, places where their you know, human rights doesn't apply to, you know, to them. I feel like what will happen in that, but it, it's, not, it's not as scary. I'm, you know, if I go, God will find somebody else to, to be able to do that. But I'll continue to do the best that, that I can to, um, to support these uh, little orphans from all over the world as much as I can 
with uh, people like you giving me a chance to speak so that way other people can actually participate and be the heroes of these children. And when I say me, I can't do it by myself. Really, honestly, there's no way. My paycheck is not big enough working for a community college. Uh, but it's people that, you know, like you, that gives me a chance to share my story and I'm able to touch um, which many people can give. Somebody who will buy a book, not only you support me, but you're also supporting these children as well. Uh, that's the only way for me to continue this mission of uh, empowering these young children. Well, I feel like you probably have a long way to go because God is using you and you are doing such amazing things with this life that you've been so blessed so many times over to have. And we are all blessed that you're here. It's people like you that give so many people hope because, you know, some people don't know what to do with their lives. They don't know. And, and, and they see you and they go, you know, I've, I've got to go out and do something. I mean, you, I just, I, I can't speak highly enough of how um, just inspiring it is to, to have read your book, to know your story, and then to see what you're doing and how much joy and love and forgiveness, all those high vibration um, vibes that, that those frequencies that are coming out of you and you have cultivated that and you cultivated that from such a young age. And so I am so honored that you have come on the show today and I want people to know um, everywhere they can find you. I know that the it's a voice in the dark, a voice in the darkness.org. That's tell us other ways if people want to follow you, if they want to get involved, what are the best ways people can do that? If they follow you, I'll send you a link to uh, my social media as well. I'm not crazy social media uh, that much, but if you connect to me from there, um, so it's Jean Celestine Lakin, just the same way with the Celestine added in the middle, my middle name, uh, Jean Celestine Lakin. They can find me anywhere. Um, search my name, find me. Uh, my email address is easy. It's Jean at a voice into darkness.org as well. So people can shoot me an email. Once they read the book and they have questions or they have something to share with me, shoot me an email, gene at a voice in the darkness.org. I'll be able to respond and I promise it is me responding. Sometimes people get response back when they ask me questions and go like, are you serious? Like, it's you that, I said, it's me, I promise. It's you that signed my book. Yes, I'm signing your book and it's shipping it away. So if they order the book from my website, don't go on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, when you a publisher, you go to uh, Amazon and get a book, you don't get a whole lot of money because they pay for shipping, distribution, all, and all the other stuff. But if you go to a avoiceinthedarkness.org uh, and you order your copy there, I have a lot of stock of books here. I will sign them and ship them your way. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank yes, you, Thank you, you got yours. Don't yeah, you? yeah, that's where I got mine. I went by Elizabeth. That's my real name because that was my that's on my credit card or whatever. So, um, uh, so if someone donated a million dollars to your that to your foundation, then you could have someone else answering emails. <laughs> yes. Or I'll continue to answer the emails because I really like I love that personal touch to things. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of weird in a sense. I don't know if you listened to this uh, conversation I was having with my uh, narrator who did, she narrated the book. 
uh, and that's on uh, Audible. Uh, it's on um, uh, Amazon there. So yeah, you're not going to get a copy of uh, Audible on my website. But when I was having a conversation with her, it, it was, she was like, but you know, I'm not famous. I'm not known. I'm not all these things. I don't have that many followers. But I was like, I chose you. I chose you because it just like it felt like it felt perfect and uh there was this question of like you know of course black and you know white and she's like I'm a white woman narrating your book I said look I ran away from racism don't bring me this yeah. <laughs> we are to be in each other's life as sister, brothers and sisters and so all these again are divisions that people create that are just they're meaningless and they're small. There's so much power within us where we can just like see one another as, you know, we are part of the kingdom family. And that's how I choose to see it every day. And so again, if anyone wants support and, and donate, I will I'll probably be sending those emails. I'll probably be sending those books because I love that. I feel like there's that, it's meaningful to me. It was never about money. Um, the work that I do, I feel like it's uh, it gives me so much joy. Even it might not pay a whole lot of money, but it gives me so much joy to be able to have that hands-on experience for somebody else. So, well, I wish you the best, and I wish all the orphans in the world the best. And I'm um, I'm gonna be right. You're gonna be right here forever. I I love you, and I'm so grateful. You. I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and that you're doing what you're doing. And um, I know that the book must have been extremely therapeutic. All those, all those journals you took, that, and and I would um, highly recommend that everybody get a copy and and read her story because it does shift a consciousness for you. It's a good thing. And <clears throat> so, Jean, is there anything else that you would leave? Uh, the world with, if you could, any any other nuggets of, of inspiration or wisdom? Couple of things. Actually one, uh, Betty, I just wanna thank you so deeply, so very much for having this, again, this platform, this place for people to come in and share uh, their thoughts, uh, to come in and be able to, to have this platform where we can, you know, interact with one another, even though that it's on, you know, um, on the internet, it's uh, it's way better than just not having the conversation. So thank you for having this platform. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the things I want to leave with people is really to hold on, you know, on hope. Really help, hold on to this hope because uh, there's a lot of shift that are happening. Uh, but if we, we just really kind of sort of like sit back a little bit and hold on, like it's going to get better. There's no wars, there's no conflicts that takes lifetime. They all come to end. So be hopeful, that's one. And the other thing too, to remind people that yes, there's, uh, I feel like there's anxiety of, uh, because of uh, COVID, because of again, like, you know, chaos, but be that voice that really loves on everyone, that brings kindness to others because we are in the kingdom of God, we are God's children. And if there's these divisions again, they're not there in the kingdom of God. And I think that we're all heading the same place. So use your kindness wisely. There we go. You <laughs> That's know, my two cents, Betsy. I know. What was that? I'm sorry. 
that's my two cents. Okay, you know what? That's an amazing two cents. I heard you a few times during this discussion that we've been having, you say love on. You don't say love people, you say love on them. It's like this, like you leave them with something, like you, and, and, and it's on them. And that's, I mean, you love on somebody, it's great. And so, but, but take that as more like in a general term. And so hope and love, that, that's what you would leave us with. And, and thanks for the reminder. Thank you, Betsy. I um, love you. <laughs> we love each other. Okay, well, I'm going to uh, say thank you to the listeners who are uh, following Freedom Junkie Radio. And I, I love all of you too. Love Ananya. And um, so just keep seeking freedom and that which raises anything positive and loving and good and hope and forgiveness and kindness and loving on people go love on somebody right now and uh until we meet again thanks for being here y'all thank you i live better than a king ever did i live better than a amazing work you really do incredible i love your interview style it's good so deep well this one i have to say i i had a little i mean i wasn't nervous but i i was there was a a trepidation because jean i don't know that i'll ever interview someone who had who, who's had even close to your experience it was it was a little bit scary to me and and you are how do i to see what what you've gone through and and the the therapy that you've allowed yourself to come through the writing of the book the forgiving the moving on and the creating your life and and giving back to other people and loving god and loving people it's profound isn't even a good enough word i, I i'm so honored to have gotten to know you just look at that smile on your face. It's, you know, I don't know you have your bad days and you probably there's times when you're like, what is, you know, life is not good or I don't know, but. Yeah, I do have my moments, but I think a lot of it because of like the gratitude when you go without so much and then you come to like having even like a little bit of like, I'm like, I wake up every morning and I'm like, okay, God, what, what am I supposed to put on my uh, gratitude? Like I usually write five things that I'm grateful for. And sometimes it's just simple things. Like I got myself, you know, my son, he gave me a hug. I'm able to just to have lights on and be able to, to step in the world and just like simple things mean so much more when everything has been taken away in a way. There's that gratitude that just goes in and then it changes me um a lot of people from my you know that I work with they go like why are you smiling all the time because there's so much joy about you know simple little things have a cup of coffee and I'm smiling about this this is important because you you suffered Mm -hmm. it really gives you a sense of like just the gratitude is uh and I can't I don't even have the right words for it it makes life seem like okay everything is going to be just fine. I'm here. Let me see how I'm going to be used. As long as I have this, like, you know, even if I don't have those things, the fact that I can open the fridge and go, oh yeah, I have food in there. 
it's a big deal. It's important because Sean, I wasn't eating grass. <laughs> if you could go back and take it all away and undo it all, would you? Oh, I would. I really like, I, there's some moments, like even like my son yesterday when he turned five, I was like, oh, like if his grandparents were here, it would have been like phenomenal. Like it would have been great. Uh, I really like, and I grew up in a, uh, in a loving community, loving um, my parents, the, my aunties and uncles were so close to, to us that I felt like so much joy that I felt like also like having my innocence taken away so, you know, so early. Um, if I could go back to that type of life, life I would definitely want to go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. It gave me so much, but I also feel like it taught me how to be this strength that came from all, all of that chaos that I feel like uh, the impact that I'm able to make, you know, um, in the world uh, to people. And when I say impact, they're not, it's not like, this massive and I know I'm touching lives. It's just like when I get a Betsy, when I get like an email that said, for the first time, because you shared that you were sexually abused and this is how you shared, I am able to speak on that myself. And I'll go, wow, what a gift you give somebody by being able to speak on things that I don't, you know, at the beginning I was like, not a big deal. I'm just sharing my story. But to come back and get those uh, response from people um, as a story of a, a sweet woman. She uh, passed just recently. She was 83 years old. Uh, she was from my home church, very close by here from where we live. And she came and she's like, she had a little um, a walker and she comes to me from, you know, at our church and she said, sign this page on this book, in your book. I was like, oh my gosh, what did I say in this? on this page that she really wants me to sign. So she read about forgiveness. And she said to me, she said, I would have gone to my grave without forgiving what happened to me. Uh, and I think it's page 241. Uh, I think that's what she had me sign. I don't remember exactly. I think, I hope that's where it is. But she had me sign there. And when I signed that, she said, because you forgive, Jean, I was able to forgive somebody who has harmed me. And I'm 83 years old. She's like, I don't have too long to live, but I was willing to go to my grave without forgiving. And Betsy, so that kind of like a gift, that simple thing that I wrote about that I thought I, it's me just expressing, you know, mm -hmm. it made an impact. And she just passed, you know, about, I think two months ago, two or three months ago. And for that, I'm like, okay, God, I mean, of course I prayed you know, to be received in heaven, but to know that I had that gift to give her, it, it almost like actually want to make me cry. So they yeah. cry. We managed to go through this without crying. Oh, God. To know that you've had that kind of an impact. And, and Jean, you'll never know how far the impact goes. And, um, Your bravery, just in the face of all of the men who would have killed you right there on the spot, your bravery when you were nine, your bravery um, to, to forgive your, the abusers that you had even after that, then your bravery to tell your story in detail 
it is all so powerful and so impactful. And um, yeah, God's using you in a big way. And so, um, I, I marked a spot in the book. It, you said that morning, I took my freedom. I never saw Furaha, his relatives, Gahigi or a refugee camp ever again. He said, I took my freedom. And I, I circled that. I was like, wow. yeah. Um, just, there's the, yeah, I, I'm, the, the reason I asked you whether you would have gone back and changed it, and I'm glad you answered the way you did because it was horrific and obviously, but, but it's made you who you are, this, this warrior angel person yeah oh my gosh Faithy, no i am not, i am just a simple <laughs> human being living down here in houston but if you come down here betty i i need a hug i let's go for lunch or coffee or something absolutely absolutely yeah. you're such a phenomenal woman yeah well, uh, god right back at you i feel i mean i i'm i'm so honored to know you and I'm going to go, I'm going to give Leanne a big hug and be like, thank you for telling me about John because it's um, just so special. I live better than a king ever did. I live better than a king.